Oh, we're digging into a dark and difficult book of the Bible this summer that was designed to push us to wrestle with what life is really all about. And here's why. When you don't know what life is really all about, you'll end up sacrificing some of the most important things on the altar of secondary and temporal things that will leave you looking back on your life and saying, oh, how I wish I could do that differently. And so Solomon brings into focus today what some of the worst collateral damage looks like when you buy into a philosophy of life under the sun, right here, right now, is all that matters. Because he's going to show us, whether you mean to or not, it will lead you to abuse or at least lose some of the most precious Gifts God has given us. You know what it is? Other people created in his own image. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Again, if you're getting the feeling in this book, they're like, I think he's already said this. He admits it. Again. This book just cycles through some of what he's saying, but just comes at it from different angles. But he's saying a lot of the same stuff again. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He's like, at this point in my life, I've seen so much heartbreaking atrocities. I think someone who's never been born that hasn't seen it would be better off. This is painful to see it. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of striving and toil after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him and a threefold cord is not 
quickly broken. So what does Solomon want us to see today from this chapter? Well, the first point is painful, but the first point is something our world, our culture, refuses to embrace and accept and acknowledge just how brutal we can be to each other. They continue to insist as I sit next to people on a plane or try to engage people about spiritual things, I continue to hear, oh, no, 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 we're getting better and better and better. I find myself thinking, what world do you live in? Have you stopped watching the news? How would you believe this? Let me tell you, it's because they want to believe it, not because it's based in any substance or fact. But it's because they want to think, no, 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 we're good, not bad. No, 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 that's the exception. When you see that, that's the exception. Point number one, it is painful to see what we can do to each other. And it's been happening for as long as there have been people. Look at verse one. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. He uses the word oppressed three times to describe the tone and climate of his day that was so disturbing to him. And I wish I could say to you, oh, but 3,000 years later, you realize we're living 3,000 years later than when he wrote this? Oh, but 3,000 years later, we hardly know what he's talking about. I wish, right? Our education, our medication, our sociology, everything we've done, uh, read history. I love to read. And you'll see how often everyone's convinced, oh, oh, there'll never be a war again. Oh, after World War I, they were convinced there'll never be another war like that. Then there was World War II. Then there was Korea. Then there was Vietnam. Now we got Ukraine and Russia, right? There's no end to the oppressions of what we can do to each other. And I'm not even talking about individually homicide, et cetera. I'm talking about on a wide scale, the atrocities and wholesale massacres of other human beings created in the image of God. In fact, in every age and stage of our human history, you can find examples. You don't, in fact, you don't have to look hard to find it. You have to work hard not to see it. Atrocities, massacres, where you're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can people do that to each other? And some of the worst atrocities that have ever been perpetrated against other human beings have to do with slavery of some kind. It still exists today. In the sex trade, I'm regularly just taken back as I read. I was reading an article last week where some woman that was on some show on TV, small town, she was, she was, she sent to prison because she was a part of a group that were capturing women and taking them into the sex trade. And you find yourself saying, are you kidding me? And it is shocking unless you read your Bible and say, oh my goodness, that's just how bad we are we're sinners and we desperately need a savior we desperately need to be rescued from ourselves in the old testament you can see where the hebrews were subjected to cruel slavery in egypt for 430 years you guys to the point that pharaoh literally said kill every baby boy what 
You find in the New Testament, as soon as Jesus was born and Herod learned that there was a baby king that had been born and he learned it from the Magi, what did he do? It's horrific. He sent a decree to kill every baby boy two years old and under in the entire area of Bethlehem. The New Testament, I don't know if you realize this, during the Roman Empire, when the New Testament letters were being written, in the Roman Empire, and I read secular history, you guys, so this is, in the Roman Empire, it is estimated, made it that as high as 40% of the population during the Roman Empire were slaves. Four out of ten people. Because Rome did not just conquer other nations, Rome then enslaved them. 40% of the population were slaves in the Roman Empire. And even the history of our own great nation is scarred with gruesome stories of ships carrying slaves to America where the lower decks were so densely packed that thousands died of disease and malnutrition and dead bodies were left down there with them until they arrived, let alone what happened to them after they arrived. Horrific. But slavery is not the only horror of what we can do to each other. It's the genocide and outright massacre of millions of people created in the image of God. And if you're thinking, oh, I guess he's going to talk to us about some point in history like centuries ago. Do you know what the bloodiest, bloodiest century was? The 20th century. The 20th century has been the bloodiest century century of all of human history as Hitler killed. That, that, was, that was in the 1940s, you guys. Were, was the German nation educated? Oh, and we're not slamming Germans. It's an example of humans. Humans. Please put yourself in the category. Hitler was able to convince a nation to go with him and thousands turned a blind eye as he killed six Million, and maybe you don't realize it wasn't just Jews. He killed six million Jews, gypsies, and people with disabilities. While communist regimes, communist regimes. It's horrific to see one nation wipe out another. Guess what's even more shocking? To see one wipe out millions of their own people in a grab for power. Stalin killed 20 million people. Russians, while the Khmer Rouge killed two million of their own Cambodians, and, and Mao Zedong killed 50 million of his own Chinese people. Solomon saw it then, we still see it now. When you buy it, and, and I think it's worth noting, connect the dots, you guys, if you're guilty of being swayed by rewritten history and blogs. Make a note. Ideas have consequences. Philosophies have implications. Some of the worst atrocities have been committed not by religious people, but by people who say there is no God. If there is no God, then it doesn't matter about people either because we don't see them as created in the image of God. Painful to see what we can do to each other. But let me point out something that's not as easy to see. We can see that. We might not want to, but we can see it. Let me point out something that's not as easy to see. Number two. Oh, it's harder to see what we do to 
ourselves. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, please understand, he's going to talk about a heart condition that we have, but he exaggerates everything because he wants you to know when life is just under the sun, right here, right now, there is no afterlife, there is no God, there is, this is what it looks like. There are examples, thankfully, of people who work for the good of others, people who work for the glory of God. But this book wants you to know, what does our world look like and what do we do when we believe it's just life under the sun, right here, right now? There is no more than this. He's talking about motives. You realize he's talking about motives here as to why we do what we do. Why do you work and why do you do what you do as hard as you do it? He is actually saying, when it's just life here under the sun, we do it to get ahead of others, to feel superior to others, and to make our mark in this world. See, greed and envy are not synonyms, you guys. Greed is focused on stuff. I just want more stuff. Envy's worse because envy impacts people Envy is related to the stuff of others. I look at others, instead of rejoicing with them, it's like, why do they have that? I should have that. How do I compare to them? I want what they have. And it also is all about not just stuff, but achievement and self. So when I pull them down, when I attack them, when I cut them down, I feel better about me. Oh, it is a relational mess. Envy. Why do you have it? Why does she have it? Why does he have that? That should be me. That should be me. That should be me. What he's talking about right here is me, not you. Me, not you. What are the two great commands when the, when the religious leaders pushed Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your... You can't love your neighbor when you're envying, when you're comparing, when you're trying to pull them down when you're attacking, when you're resenting, when you're thinking it should be not me, not them. It should be me, not them. And you, see, and you see what has happened is the heart, the sinful heart is being driven to do work for a wrong reason. Is work bad? Louder. Tell the young generation, work is not bad. Work is not the problem. Work is good. We're created in the image of God. He's a worker, we're a worker. What's bad is doing it, trying to get work to do for you what it was never designed to do. It was never designed to fulfill you and mark you out and help you get a name for yourself. But you see it right from the beginning. As soon as sin exploded in our world in Genesis 3, ho, Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, right? It's interesting. You see this wrong motive immediately. In Genesis 11, this is bonus you want to jot this down happened in my den yesterday bonus genesis eleven four, where it says they said human beings let us build for ourselves a city and a tower so far so good building's not wrong achieving and let us make a say it name were we designed to make a name for ourselves we're supposed to do it for the glory of God. We're created in the image of God. Do it for, when you try to get work to make a name for you, it's exhausting and it's destructive to those around you. 
Let us make a name for ourselves. So believe it or not, it's this heart condition to be noticed, to be superior, to make a mark, to prove yourself. We have this innate desire to prove ourselves, to prove ourselves, to prove ourselves. But when you step on that path and try to use work to do it, it's exhausting. Even if you excel, think about it. You know the workplace, right? Say you hit the mark and like, oh, you're the best that year. What do they do if you can do that? Now next year, do this. Do they ever say, that's so much better than everybody else. Just keep doing that. They do not. It's like, if you can do that, then sell this many. Then do this many. It is never ending. And if you've tied your identity and your worth and your sense to it, you will be exhausted. Exhausted. So it's really not about piling up money and stuff or achievements. What's really going on in the human heart is how that money and stuff makes me look compared to others. My address, the house I live in, the car I drive, the plaques on my wall. It's not so much about the stuff, but how the stuff makes me stand out as compared to others. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. And if you're still thinking, is that really a big problem, Brad? Oh, it is, because we were designed, we were created in the image of God, designed to live for the glory of God. And when you step onto this path of trying to get it to promote you, advance you, compare you to others, it begins to destroy you. Because here's what happens. You're no longer just manufacturing a product. And trust me, you're like, does Brad know anything about this? Yes, even in the pastor world, right? All of us have the same heart. I know you may be, quote, in the marketplace and I'm in the pastor world. But the same thing is going on in the pastor world. How does my sermon stand out to their sermon? How do people respond to me at the conference versus him and his workshop or her, right? It never ends if you're not careful. It's just like you can get caught up in it, caught up in it, and it will destroy you. Destroy you. Because now you're no longer producing or serving or manufacturing a product, you're trying to create yourself and prove yourself that you are somebody and validate yourself. But we were never designed to create ourselves or validate ourselves. We were designed, you ready? To give ourselves to a good God who says, you are my beloved Son or daughter, I love you apart from anything you do. You won't find that in this world. Oh, that's what the human heart is actually longing for and was made for. To know apart from anything that I do. God isn't saying now. Do all these things right, and and that's the basis of my love for you. Now, human beings still shift over into it and can be guilty of it. That's why you have to read the Bible that keeps bringing you back. No, no, no. He loves me unconditionally because I'm in 
Christ. I know Jesus and he loves his son and that does not change. And so he loves me. I don't have good days and bad days based on Bible reading, based on obedience, based on, based on, based on. When you can settle into this, you were not created to define yourself, promote yourself, validate yourself. You were designed to give yourself to a good God through his son, Jesus Christ, who says, I love you, beloved son, beloved daughter, not based on anything you are doing. What he's talking about in verse four of this trying to prove yourself is what actually brutalizes the workplace. I know the hours are getting longer, you guys, but what really is wearing people out is not the number of hours, but it's this internal churning of trying to prove and validate and get ahead and be superior. That's what makes the workplace so, so filled with drama and angst and conflict. Me, not you. Me, not you. Let me remind you again. Me, not you. Nobody says it out loud, but you run into it. What is going on here? Do people tend to rejoice in someone else's success? And they're just lining up the door to say, just wanted to say, way to go, good job. No. They sit in their cubicle and they seethe. They seethe. And they plot how to take you down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're going down. You're going down. And and if you think this sounds too ugly... I'm telling you what, it's just the ugly truth of the sinful human heart. Just the ugly truth, you guys, of what the Bible teaches about us. But let me show you where our passage zooms in again on the relational damage that happens when you begin to live as if right here, right now, is all that matters. Number three. Oh, it is tragic, you guys. To see what gets crushed or lost along the way. If you get on this path of living for right here, right now, and trying to validate yourself, prove yourself, show that you're worthy, you are somebody. Oh, it's tragic. I think we have one of the saddest verses tucked down into our chapter today. Because it zooms in on the portrait of a man or woman who loses sight of what matters most. Stay with me. When you lose sight of what matters most, it leads to losing the people you love the most. People, people, people. Because here's what happens, you guys. If you lose sight of what matters most, living for the glory of God, loving him and others, and it's just right here, right now, right here, right now, with both hands, grabbing all you can, promoting self, right here, right now. People simply become commodities. And you're either helping me get what I want or you're in my way. Why would I love you? Why would I treasure you? It's all about me achieving, me getting, me being seen, and you're either helping me, or some of you are sitting there thinking, I think I live with this person. Yeah. It's not a fun way. When someone loses sight of what matters most, because think about it, loving someone else, does that take time? That could be time you could have been spent still one more project, one more, one more, one more, one more. 
It takes time, time to love other people and to treasure other people well. People just become commodities. You're either helping me get what I want because it's still about me or you're in my way. Look at what I'm talking about in verse seven and eight. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Here's this sad phrase. One person who has no other. This verse is not talking. Be careful right here. This verse is not talking about somebody who has nobody because they never had anybody. It's talking about they lost people along the way on the altar of secondary and temporal things. Anybody know a son or daughter who really doesn't want to relate to their dad or spend time with him or speak to him? Not because he has no money, but because he had no time for them. Anybody know a spouse that's either living somewhere else, divorced, or is there, but is no longer there emotionally, is distant and bitter and cold and detached? Not for lack of money, but for lack of being treasured and having time invested in that relationship. One person who has no other. Listen, if you get this wrong, if you get this wrong and you step onto this path that the world tries to suck us into of right here, right now, and work is how you will prove yourself, validate yourself, how much money, what you drive, where you live, plaques on the wall. Oh, oh, listen. You could end up with a lot of stuff and nobody to enjoy it with. Nobody that wants to be around you because you wrecked your relationships along the way. And put me at the top of the list. Again, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not just speaking down to you from the ivory tower. Brad Bigney did the first 10 years of ministry in the wrong way. As hard as I could, as fast as I could go, as much as I could do, I could always be doing something else in ministry. While my wife kept saying, I don't even know you. I don't know you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We, we bought marshmallows together for the youth. Like we were together. And, she, and I know now, 37 years later, she meant to sit and to look into each other's eyes, not just shop, not just do stuff. I mean, there's side by side doing stuff and there's face to face enjoying each other and getting to know each other. And I was about to be divorced. Praise God she had enough. She said, I'm not going to divorce you, but I don't love you anymore at all. That's what Brad Bigney had done by the way he was doing life, by the way he was going, the way he was going. And whoo, trust me, this was not easy at first, but so worth it. Now, we love each other dearly, but I had to rein it in to treasure and to value and to invest in not just my kids, but my wife and friends and others. It takes time. You can get this wrong on any path. But oh, The voice is out there, even in ministry, right? I I went to Bible college where literally, sadly, it was said in chapel, just go as hard as you can for the glory of God and the kingdom and God will take care of your family. They said that back then. That's how old I am. And I believed it. That's wrong. God calls you to make time for your family 
and relationships. And I had to change and play Candyland and throw the ball and ride bikes and learn how to be with people while my mind raced with what I could, could have been doing next and then finally believe that this is better. Better. What matters most Almost 100 years ago now. And see, here's the problem. Successful people will talk in the wrong way. And we want what they did or had. And so we believe if we do what they're saying, it'll happen for us. Almost 100 years ago now, 1926, Henry Ford said, quote, I don't think a man can ever leave his business. He ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night. Oh, my. Oh, my. And that's what so many of your employers want you to do, right? You ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night. Think of it by day and dream. Basically means you have no other priorities or thoughts. That is not biblical. If you right now are doing nothing but thinking of it by day and dreaming of it by night, your job, your vocation, that project, what needs to happen next, how do I fit in, you're already in trouble. He ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night. Oh, but it gets worse. Thinking men know that work is the salvation of the race. What a lie. Work can't save us, you guys. But there's this sense that I'll prove myself. I'll validate myself. I'll make my mark. The salvation. No, it's not. No, it's not. You'll never get there. You'll never get there. You'll never get there. It's carried on a stick. It's not the salvation of the race. He says physically, morally, socially, work does not just make us a living. It gets us a life. He's blurring and making your life synonymous with work. I had to fight hard to make a distinction. I am a pastor, but I am also a person, a child of God, a husband a father, a friend that is distinct from this. And I have to keep working hard at it because the temptation is, I know, I'm just gonna be honest, when you ask me to do stuff, hey, can you meet, can you go to this, can you do this, can you, can you, can you, can you? My flesh wants to say yes so that you will like me. I had to learn to say, no, can't do it. And I actually learned to not tell you why. I said, because we have a date. People would look at me like, whatever, go out with your wife another time. So now, full disclosure, when I say to people, ooh, I already have a commitment. So sorry, can't. It's related to relationships in my life that I have to make time for. And I have to be willing to disappoint other people who might think ill of me in order to please the one who matters most and to finish well with the things that matter most, people, and not just achievement. Not just other kind of ministry or work accolades. Oh, oh. Henry Ford is is advocating a lie. And Solomon says, don't buy it. Don't believe it. Don't do this or your future will be, verse 8. A person who has no other. Has no other. You might have a lot of stuff. But stuff's not enough. Stuff can't feel, can't fill what your heart is longing for. Stuff can't do it. 
Billy Joel. I love music. Sorry, I love Billy Joel's music too. There you go. Billy Joel has now sold 150 million records. And oh, wow. People think, oh, I did, I did Madison Square Garden in New York City once. That's a big deal. That marks you out. That makes you stand out above others. News. Billy Joel sold out Madison Square Garden 45 years in a row and has dated some of the hottest supermodels. But just three years after he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, those are all the things the world would say, that's it, that's it, that's it. You're so happy now. You've arrived. You Three years after he's inducted, he said, quote, the happiest times in my life were when my relationships were going well. When I was in love with someone and someone was loving me, but in my whole life I haven't met the person I can sustain a relationship with yet. Now, I don't know him well, but let me surmise something. I don't know that it may be every person he's connected with was so difficult to relate to. It may be that it takes time to sustain relationships, Billy. Did you give them enough time? I haven't met the person yet. He's on his fourth wife that I can sustain a relationship. And then he goes on to say this. So, I'm discontented and I have regrets. I have regrets. He literally said, I'm living in this posh mansion way out in east whatever above New York City. And he said, I'm going to move into Manhattan because I'm never going to meet anybody out here. He sold his posh whatever to Jerry Seinfeld to move more where people are. And he said, I want to meet somebody. He wanted relationship, relationship, relationship. And the the interviewer literally pushed back because guess what? If you've never lived it, you still are are convinced. Oh, but what you have would do it. What you had would do it. What do you mean? The, The interviewer pushed back and said, but you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he said, quote, That's cold comfort at the end of the day. You can't go home with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You can't sleep with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And you don't get hugged by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. You realize some of the most precious things you have around you cost very little money. But it needs your attention and time. People, people, created in the image of God. And I don't have time to develop it, but if you're wondering, are there any positive places in Ecclesiastes, things I should do? Oh, verses 9 to 12, here's one of them, where Solomon literally trips over himself trying to pile up, pile up, pile up, and promote the value of investing in people. And here's a guy that had it all. So rich. He was so rich that silver meant nothing in his reign, right? He's got the stuff. In verses 9 to 12, he piles up the value of investing in people. This is that passage that gets read at weddings. He says in letter A, he he points out the benefit of assistance. You'll, you'll do life with somebody else. You won't be alone. You can work. You can get more done. Assistance. Letter B, the reward of comfort. 
Oh, the comfort of another person, a friendship, a relationship, far exceeds the comfort that excess of alcohol or drugs or Netflix can do for you. The comfort. You'll have the benefit of comfort. And let her see, you'll have the security of defense. One of my favorite things right now in my life related to our marriage is that I know, even though I'm still a sinner that's far from perfect, Vicky is with me and for me. Oh, oh, that's a sweet comfort. It doesn't have to be a spouse. It can be good friends, but it took time to get there. Benefit of comfort, assistance, and defense. And so don't make a mistake. You don't have to be famous to wreck relationships. You just need to be careless and caught up and living as if right here, right now. And, and stay with me. You say, but I'm a Christian. I know right here, right now is not all that matters. Could you, with your lips, state a theology that's accurate? Oh, but there's more. And yet live in a way that is incongruent with what you say you believe. Help me. Yes, you can. These two things need to merge. Live what you say you believe. Live what you say you believe. If right here, right now is not all that matters most, it should change how you live, especially as it relates to people around you. Oh, I hope you would never, and it's on the rise. It breaks my heart. We're having to dig into it some, even as elders here. I hope you would never abuse your loved ones. But he wants you to wake up to the fact that you can lose your loved ones through neglect and delay. I think far, far more damage is done through neglect and delay than outright abuse. Neglect and delay. Because you just say, tomorrow. Next year, I'm going to take some time with the kids or the family. Next year, next year. And next year becomes next decade. While your kids have grown up, your spouse has grown bitter, and your friends have stopped calling. Because you got sucked onto the path. Oh, just one more deal. Just one more. Just one more. Just a little more. Just one more. Listen to me. Money, possessions, and property are not your biggest assets in life. But he created us. God created us to be in relationship with him and other people. To be in relationship with him and other people. But to be connected in relationship. You have to make time for God and other people. Are you making time for God? Do you know him? To sit and read his word, to sit and pray, to pour out your heart to him, to get to know him and other people, God and other people, God. You were, when, you were designed to thrive in relationship with God and other people. Some of your lack of thriving, you're like, I'm not thriving, but you tend to think, because I don't have that, and I'm not seen as that, and people don't value me. That's not your biggest problem. How well do you personally know God? And how much are you making time for people, people, people? And so what's the answer? Oh, another great verse in this chapter. He gives us the answer in Verse six, and it's my final point in verse four, and excuse me, my final point, number four. 
He says, it is life-changing when you finally decide to choose what is best. Something better. You have to choose it. You have to step off that path. You have to go against the flow. You have to choose it. You have to choose it. One of my biggest struggles with trying to rescue the path that I was on is I was working with two older pastors that were getting it wrong. They were workaholics, and I felt the pressure. I would say to Vicki, but they're there. They're there. They're there before I get there, and they're there after I leave. And I had little kids, but I felt this pressure. I can't be going to the car with my briefcase, and they're still there. Oh, it's hard. It's hard. I had to make a choice, decide for me, nobody else could do it, that I was going to do this differently. Look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving. In other words, he says, the answer's not working day and night trying to grab all you can with both hands and define yourself, validate yourself, prove yourself. And it's worth noting in verse 5, because we're creatures of extreme. It's so funny when we finally believe, not that. If you're not careful, you're like, oh, so this, I don't work. I've got time for anybody. Call me. Call me. I just, I just kind of hang out. I'm in a coffee shop. I'm available. All about relationships. Please, young people, that's not it either. Verse 5, he says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So it's not two hands full of toil. It's not fold your hands and do nothing. Ah, verse 6. Very often, you guys, the answer in the Bible is the tension of a biblical middle balance. Because I love what he's saying. What he's actually advocating is please keep working. Work. With one hand and keep one hand free to choose quietness. And don't make a mistake. He's not talking about a quiet personality or sitting in silence. That word quietness in the Hebrew language, that word describes rest, peace of mind, calmness of spirit that's rooted in, stay with me, a deep-seated sense of well-being that comes from knowing your place in this world, and who you are. Your place, oh, there is a God, and I don't have to be God. I'm created in his image. I live for, and I don't have to prove myself. A sense of well-being in knowing your place in this world and being content with who you are and what you have. And I'm not just talking about stuff. I'm talking about gifting. No, the world just hammers into us As soon as someone does something great, and I know they mean well, but they're like, young people, no, you can do anything you want. You can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. Some of you are slow. You're just slow. You're never going to get a medal for running. Get get over it. Figure out what your gifting is. And some, you're you're just average at best. That was me. I scored like a 28 on the ACT. I didn't get scholarships. Doesn't matter how hard I worked, I'm not brilliant. But I could work my little big knee butt off and make straight A's. Well, some of you just read it once and like, photographic memory, I hate you. <laughs> but I worked hard to get, so figure out where you are. I, I mean, I could have said, oh, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer like my dad. 
No, I can't even put up blinds in the house. I don't understand anything 3D. Harrison, at 10 years old, would come over and say, Dad, you just blah, 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 blah. I'm like, how do you see that? There's something missing from my brain. I could sing, I could color, I could read. And you can be poor doing any of those things. So I became a pastor. And learned that I can talk, I can read, and then talk to you about what I'm reading. Perfect. I had to figure out how God's gifted me. You can't be or do anything you want. You can cultivate and develop the innate gifts he's given you, and please do. And then do it for the glory of God, not to make yourself a name. And you will have joy, and you'll have relationships along the way. Because you won't be driven to overwork. You won't be driven to try to exceed someone else and prove yourself against someone else. And notice... On purpose, I use the word choose. You have to decide to choose. Guess what? Nobody can do it for you. Nobody can do it for you. They can, oh my goodness, it it can be evident to other people. Absolutely. They can be concerned about you as they see how you're living and horrified for you. But only you can stop the madness. Only you can say, enough, enough. And trust me, it will be hard. I was so used to living on adrenaline that I felt lazy. I was like, oh my goodness, this can't be right. I'm not doing anything productive. And, and I had to work at it. to find. I read a book called, When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. I mean, I'd been going 100 miles an hour since I was like, I don't know, five. Like this was a shock to my system But oh, it was such a helpful reorientation and I might add process of repentance. Repentance. Because I was living for Brad Bigney more than I realized. It wasn't for the glory of God. It was for me and it was killing me and the people that I said I loved the most. Only you can decide. So let me ask you, what's in your hands today do you have two hands full of striving and never mind the marketplace listen to me you you don't get a grace card on this if you're like well i'm a stay-at-home mom this sermon didn't even relate to me ah hang on are you a stay-at-home mom that feels the need to post every little delightful meal that has a little basil leaf on the side are you a stay-at-home mom that must right i'm trying to validate myself I've got to be seen as, that's pretty exhausting too. Vic and I said to each other, I don't know how these young women are doing it. We struggle to just do life with little kids apart from posting it. How do you have time for the pictures? And then you've got to clean it up and make it look right. Just, just cook the meal and serve it, doggone it. It's like, oh my word, this must be exhausting to have to post and validate what you're doing And again, I don't want you all to think the next time you post something, I think you're a wretched sinner. We're talking about balance. But I do want to ask you, why do you do what you do? Are you in verse 4? A man's toil and work is because he envies. I must be seen as a better mom, a better cook, a better house manager, a better, better, better. That's exhausting. That's exhausting. 
And, and God wants something better for you. What's in your hand? Have you learned yet? I had to learn. Have you learned yet to free up one hand? Brad Bigney still goes pretty hard. I work. But I've learned to free up one hand to choose quietness. Quietness. It takes time. I get up earlier to sit on the patio with my Bible and coffee and birds to know my God. I don't want to just tell you about someone I don't know. Could I keep telling you about a God based on the Bible that I no longer actually really know well? Scary answer, yes. Like a tour guide talking about places they've never actually been in a while. I want to talk to you about places and a God that I've been with recently. Like today. Even though it's Sunday, you're like, oh, I'm going to be using the Bible. Okay, for you. I got up earlier today and sat with my Bible for guess who? Me. I want to know him. And then I want to point you to someone I know. Have you learned yet? Whether you're a pastor, home manager, whatever you are in the marketplace, how to keep one hand freed up to choose quietness. A deep-seated sense of well-being. Because you know your place in this world. I don't have to prove anything. He loves me unconditionally. And you're okay. You're content with your level of giftedness. Who you are and what you have. Oh, my goodness. You'll find joy. You'll find peace. And you'll find people still around you. Because you're making time for them. And this deep-seated sense of peace and rest is actually found in a person. And his name is Jesus. Let me show you the rest that he offers us. As we close, go to Matthew 11. Go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. This is Jesus speaking in the midst of a world that's screaming at you, your work You should think about it during the day and dream about it at night. It's the salvation of the race. You don't just work. You get a life. Oh, in the midst of all those lies, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, say it, rest. Oh, take. Now, now this might confuse you. You're like, wait a minute. Rest would be unshackled from anything. He says, take my yoke upon you. Here's why. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. And you, here, here it is again. And you will find rest for your souls on a deep level. Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to me. There's only two options. Every single human being is yoked to something right now. You are not autonomous. You are not completely free. You're either yoked up to one of the lies of this world that work will fulfill me and you've stuck your head in the yoke of work and it's rubbing It's wearing you out. Or you've stuck your head in the yoke of pleasure. Enough of this will do it. All kinds of, everyone sitting here is yoked up to something. 
He's inviting you to submit and say, oh my goodness, I'm tired of doing life alone. I want to yoke up with Jesus. And that word in the Greek, easy, literally means a good fit. It's a good fit. You were designed to be yoked to Jesus. You were not created to live life alone and try to figure it out. And what's so cool, back in that day, they would yoke a young oxen with a seasoned older one so that that young ox could learn how to... Do you know everything you need to know about life and how to do it? Jesus is saying, let me help you. Let me help you. Take my yoke. But to take his yoke, you got to get out from under some of these other ones. Oh, if you're not a Christian, I beg you. Here's what's so cool. This is a universal offer. It's a simple invitation and a universal promise to every single person. Black, white, every color in between, male, female, young, old, poor, rich, educated, uneducated. No one's left out. Come to me and I'll give you rest. But you got to know what it means to come to him. If you're not a Christian, it means to believe in who he says he is and that he can do for you what he offers to do. Will you come? Believe. Put your trust in him. Submit to him. Learn from him. But if you're here and you're a Christian and you're pushing back a little bit like, honestly, Brad, I am a Christian. I don't have rest. I don't have this kind of deep-seated peace. My challenge to you would be this then. Get to know Jesus better. Here's how it works. Can you come to faith in Jesus and still know almost nothing about him? The more you know him, the more you trust him. The more you trust him, the more you lean into what he says and not what you think. And that load and that weight of life begins to decrease. But some of you, You don't trust him. You're the one pulling in another direction, and it's just a battle with you and your Savior because it doesn't matter what issue of life you're dealing with, you still think, no, what? And you think his job is to help you still do what you always did, and he's supposed to, he will not follow. You will not win. There'll be this tug of war if you want the rest of your days, or you can submit and learn and say, I would never have thought Brad Bigney would never have thought working less is the answer. You listen to him. You learn. And you follow. And you begin to have a level of peace and joy you never had before. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for your word that doesn't just talk about stuff, but brings into focus what matters most regarding people created in your image, starting with us. Oh, God, free us from the lies of this world and enable us to learn how to free up one hand for a handful of quietness, deep-seated sense of our place in this world, who we are in relation to who you are that might cause us to live radically different and make a difference and an impact in this world. With people, oh God, renew our minds, grant repentance, and continue to lead us and change us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.